I have to whisper? I don't know anymore. <laughs> welcome, everybody. Welcome to CASA Live. I am Logan, VP of the Board of CASA, joined with Kristen, who is our member coordinator. I see a bunch of familiar faces in chat. It feels like I have been gone for a while. I feel like I haven't done this in what feels like, I don't know, like at least a month or a month and a half or something like that. It's, yeah. it's been a while. It's been a while. Philip out there in chat, John Fa of the Q tube family, <laughs> Patty, Tom, Adrian, R B M K L L R B Mickle. Chur is here. Chur. <laughs> Uh, welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we have quite the episode ready for everybody. We're going to be joined later on by Miss Annie K. Clay Camp. Clay Camp? I think I, I hope I said that right. Uh, who's an experimental? <laughs> what is that? I said we probably should have asked. I probably should have asked. I'm just going to throw it out there and hope for the best. Uh, She's an experimental (laughs) psychologist, scientist, and tobacco harm reduction advocate. And we are going to be talking about some correlational things and some causational things and the differences between them. But before we get into that, Kristen, would you like to get into some legislation? Let's do it. Let's do it. I hope you're ready because I'm going to do the thing. I hope I'm ready too. The whole world is on fire right now, Kristen. We have pulsed action out all over the place, all over the place. It is crazy. So let's, uh, let's get right down to brass tacks and what yeah, do we have there's a on? lot. And if you want to, if you guys want to see all these, they are at the top of the blog posts from this week. I've been just kind of keeping them all in there, and there's just this big list now. It's crazy. Um, Alex unfortunately has some. Uh, family emergency that he had to do this weekend. So uh, that's why you're stuck with me. Sorry. Okay. Um, The big one he said to talk about was New York. He wanted me to make the point that uh, she's proposing to ban flavors in all tobacco and nicotine products that are still legally available, that this is not just a ban on menthol cigarettes, as some people seem to think. It's everything that's left over (laughs) that you can still get. I mean, it is cigarettes, any, any flavors everything. in, yeah, uh, nicotine pouches, um, snooze, anything that, that could be flavored. Uh, there's also a tax hike she's proposing in all these products. So if you're in New York and you're thinking, well, we already have a flavor ban, we still need you to fight these things. And if we can keep, if we can make the argument for these things, we can make the argument for vapor products too down the road. So uh, yeah. don't don't ignore that call to action, please, if, if you're in New York. Uh, and again, the links are it. also on. I'm here in New York. And yeah, there you, you go. Do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the links are all also in the description of the video, too. Uh, Minnesota SV2123 has a flavor ban. So again, on that one, Nebraska LB84 has a vape tax. They're going from a 584. 584? What did I say? LB584. You just said LB84. Oh, yeah, 584. Sorry about that. Um, uh, it was proposed initially as a five cent tax per milliliter. And it be it sounds like rumor is that they might be changing that to a 20% wholesale tax. Uh, Cleveland, Ohio, there's a flavor ban that's in the works. Maryland, SB259, a flare, flavor ban. Oregon, HB3090, a flavor ban. Connecticut, having Groundhog Day going here. Uh, Connecticut, HB 6488, a flavor ban. New Mexico, HB 94 is a flavor ban. 
Hawaii has two things going on. A HB 551 is a flavor ban and HB 537 is a tax parity um, bill, meaning they want to redefine the products as tobacco products and they don't, everything's blank in there is how much the tax would be, but all of our tax, all tax, yeah, all tobacco products other than little cigars are taxed at 70% the retail cost. Uh, this is kind of pushed out to their, like the year 3000. So there's not a huge uh, rush on this. Yeah, I don't but... remember if, if this came up in the last time you and I discussed legislation or it might've been when uh, it was Alex and I, uh, a lot of people get kind of, I don't know, they get it in their heads that this bill doesn't happen until the year 3000 or no. something like that. Yeah. But uh, when they do this, it's just to leave things open for debate. Like if they could just draw a little infinity loop in that date, they would, but they can't do that. They actually have to specify a date when this, you know, needs to be settled by. So they'll put some arbitrary future number just to leave it open for discussion for however it long, long it needs to be right. uh, debated or on the floor or whatever. And that way it doesn't have to, that way it doesn't die at a specified time. They can just be like, yeah, sure. We should be done talking about this by the year 3000. Yeah, Hopefully but that does not mean that we should just ignore it. Let's right. get no, involved absolutely. in that debate so, guys. And yeah, uh, make sure you're letting your, your representatives and lawmakers know that you disagree with this. Yeah. Um, there's two heads up. We don't have calls to action officially up for them yet, but uh, Indiana HB 1133 has a flavor ban. This now has been assigned to the House Committee on Public Policy. And then Illinois SB 1561 has a public use ban. This one has been placed on the Senate calendar for the third reading on March 21st, 2023. Uh, I know a lot of people think, oh, you just don't vape or you don't smoke. But the, yeah, that's what most people do. But the problem is, is the, all the things that they say to justify these laws, they lie about the risks of vaping. And so if they can argue that you can't vape outside 15, unless you're outside 15 feet from a door, all these people who are walking by are like, see, they can't vape inside, so it must be dangerous. It must be as bad as smoking. It, it's just a bad look. And also, um, it's just an ins another incentive they're taking away from people who smoke to switch. Sure. You know, yeah. I mean, that was a huge thing for me. I've said this before. Back in 2009, Wisconsin was passing their indoor uh, smoking ban, and it was a huge incentive for me to switch to vaping because of that. At the time, I was sure. kind, of, kind of, I went to bars a lot more back then. You're right. I mean, it also. <laughs> have it in Wisconsin, which is awesome. But businesses should be able to choose. There's just, there's literally no reason to make this a law because sure. no, there's no law against a business saying we don't want to allow it. And people have right. to do what, I mean, otherwise you're trespassing. So there are um, paths that, businesses can take to avoid having people smoke or vaping in their their businesses so it's just ridiculous to have this a law and it, and it just is it just puts bad optics on vaping as being sure as bad as smoking so i see right. it and it, it de-incentivizes people to switch like you exactly. were saying and then you know there's also just that kind of uh subliminal stigma that comes with it you know when we force mm -hmm. people outdoors we force them away we we push them to the outskirts to uh you know because they're they're vaping they're smoking they're bad they're dirty they're polluting the air whatever it is right. uh regardless of a lack of scientific evidence there 
It does. It causes stigma for. for well, I just think about it. I mean, I know I've seen some nursing homes now are rethinking their smoking bans, you know, of what you know, people's last years of their life and having to leave the campus completely just I mean, to have a cigarette. I mean, just imagine, just imagine, you know, you people have to. That's gonna that increases your vulnerability. You're outside at one o'clock in the morning vaping because yeah. you can't be inside the bar. It's, you know, now you're now you're a target. You know, I mean, it's yeah. just not, there's a lot of reasons not to. And we can, we can even look at things like Philadelphia's ban on smoking and treatment centers that they had going for, I don't know, I don't remember how many years thing. Right. I'm, I'm almost a hundred percent sure that that's been overturned since then, but uh, so. we know that it caused higher dropout rates from treatment mm -hmm. centers, uh, mm -hmm. lower, um, you know, intake rates. People, people didn't want to go if they weren't even allowed to go out and have a cigarette while they're dealing with you know, withdrawals and treatment and trying to recover and all of these things, it really de-incentivized, you know, de-incentivized people uh, seeking treatment for, you know, problematic drug use and whatnot. Um, and it, it's just, yeah, it, the, these, these smoking and vaping bans all over the place. Um, it's, it's just ridiculous, especially if it's outside, you know, especially outside, like in the yeah. open air, yeah. Good yeah, lord. What's but, the yeah, you're gonna so smell cool. what? Some strawberry donut? God forbid. Right. <laughs> and when I tweeted about it immediately, somebody responded to the tweet, well, you shouldn't vape where you can't smoke. And it's like you're missing the point. You're really missing the point. It's so yeah. much more than that. It's like, yeah, you and can most do of that, the places but... you should be able to smoke where you can't smoke. Right? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, let's without well, further think... ado. That does it for legislation. Just really quick, super fast recap. New York, Minnesota, Nebraska, Cleveland, Ohio, Maryland, Oregon, Connecticut, New Mexico, Hawaii with a few things and a couple of heads up going on in Indiana and Illinois. Uh, and again, Kristen, where can people find all of that? Uh, you can find it in your state Facebook state pages. They're all posted there. It's on our blog at the top and each state page on our website, kasad.org. Just go over to, um, what is it? Get involved tab, scroll down to national and state and there'll be a map there. You can click on that map, scroll down and you can see any of the active calls to action that are going on. Awesome. Fantastic. So Let's get to the meat and potatoes of this here show. Uh, in just a second here, we're going to bring in Annie, who's a scientist and writer committed to removing the barriers that separate the public from health research and policy. She has a PhD in experimental psychology and with postdoctoral training at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. She's the author of over 50 systematic reviews and publications in peer-reviewed peer academic journals. That's your LinkedIn, Annie. I hope you're ready to join <laughs> us on the show. We're going to bring her on. I can see her smiling. <laughs> All right, let's, let's do the thing. I hope that covered it. I hope that was accurate. <laughs> that was good. I, I haven't looked at that in a while. So um, it's, it's, it sounds all accurate, which I wrote it. So hopefully it is. Yeah, I was <laughs> saying, there's only one Google. person to blame you it's not Google? accurate, right? <laughs> Welcome, Annie. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I, I did just do that, that little kind of snippet about you, but really quick, if you want to just give people kind of a background uh, on you, what you do, how you finangled your way into this crazy space that we're all in right now with with tobacco harm reduction and vaping and all of this stuff 
The floor is yeah. yours, Annie. Awesome. Yeah, I'll try to keep it short because I know my background's not the key, but to give you all some insight into sort of the expertise I'll bring today. So I grew up in Appalachia, Eastern Kentucky, where you might imagine a lot of smoking. It's a big part of my family. Never truly clicked with me. I was, uh, you know, I always had some Marlboro ultralights or whatever in the 90s when I was going to college. But I, I did, you know, there's a lot of addiction in my family. Um, and so that really drove me to seek out, you know, graduate training in addiction research. Um, I was really interested in the effects of drugs on memory and attention and cognition. Mm -hmm. So sort of did that straight route. I didn't want to stop. I was afraid, you know, if I stopped, I would never complete it. So I did Wake Forest for my master's, really focused on nicotine and cognition there, um, like nicotine as a cognitive enhancer, mm -hmm. and then transferred to my PhD program. Happy to talk more about that. Um, my PhD program was at Richmond at Virginia Commonwealth University. And that's when I really started to do really um, controlled studies. And we'll talk about that with causation of people who smoke in laboratory settings. We're giving them different doses of nicotine and seeing if that like dulls their um, desire to smoke, as you might imagine with nicotine replacement. This I got my PhD in 2007. So it was right before e-cigarettes. Oh, yeah were right. So my whole training was really looking at nicotine as in, in the best light, I would say. And there's been, as you all know, a huge um, cultural shift around that where nicotine has been vilified way more than when I got my training, which is an interesting sort of yeah. difference. But yeah, so really quick, I, I went on, I did those postdocs you mentioned. I was hyper-focused on a bunch of different drugs then. I was here at Hopkins. I'm in Baltimore. I looked at ketamine. I looked at, and this is separate from nicotine, alcohol, just really trying to understand different ways drugs impact cognition. And then really got disillusioned with academia. Um, just felt like I was so removed from the reality of where drugs are being used. Baltimore has historically, you know, it's on the sort of the track of um, the drug trade. So we've always had, you know, issues with opioids and cocaine, of course, tobacco use. So I jumped into science writing and doing systematic reviews. I left the area of nicotine and tobacco because honestly, <clears throat> I, I was really um, just not inspired by society of research on nicotine, tobacco, the, the main conference I'd go to and just felt I got to do more. So I did that and I was doing that. I'm writing a lot. You all can look at my CV or my, um, sorry, my LinkedIn but uh, around 2014, um, Penny Associates, which is a consulting firm that you all may have heard of in the, this space, at that time, they were working with Enjoy. And they sort they knew me because my background, I, I was friendly with them. And they recruited me to come on board. And, you know, Joe Gitchell, who heads up Penny, and I really, you know, we had, multiple, we still have a great relationship, but, you know, he sort of schooled me. I already knew about harm reduction, but the challenges with tobacco harm reduction. Um, and while I was there, they signed a contract with RJ Reynolds for mm -hmm. non-combustible products support. That That's when things really hit the fan for me as a scientist, because as you all might, might imagine, working with a tobacco company, even in like THR, um, it was not received well. So people publicly removed themselves from committees with me at SRNT. I wrote, and I'll talk about this today if we can fit it into the context of our conversation, a critique of the 2016 Surgeon General's report published that in Nicotine and Tobacco Research. And Brian King's response, um, he was the, the main author at that time of that report, and I can talk why I critiqued it, was the first sentence was just calling out my affiliation with industry. 
and the whole other response just doubled down on the accuracy of that report, which I believe is really biased and gets into correlation and not causation. So fast forward now, I, I stepped away from Penny just because I thought I got to sort of, I got to clean my CV, I got to clean my disclosures. And so for the past few years, I've been rebuilding. I've been working more with CASA, really trying to get more involved with people who use drugs, alcohol, tobacco, and a little more of my view, right, right? <laughs> should have started with that, but it doesn't. And there's work to be done. I created my own company called BAK and Associates. It's basically just like me. I have no associates and I do <laughs> like science writing. I try to write for the public. I still love doing research. I'm really interested in older adults and tobacco use, how they're a neglect, honestly, an overlooked population. And I just signed, I promise I'll stop talking about myself, a contract to start at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in their Division on Addiction Research and Treatment. So basically, I'll have my company. I'll have that affiliation. I really hope that will give me a platform to do more work with CASA, with people, you know, Urban Survivors Union is a whole other advocacy organization for people who may be using opioids, right, or other drugs, or tobacco, most commonly tobacco. But um, yeah, so that's where I'm at today. Um, I'm glad to join you all. I will say my background, and we can dig into causation, correlation, all that. It's, it's training and research methods that are really focused on very controlled lab dis, like situations. So think randomized controlled trials. So this mm -hmm. is like where we're very closely manipulating, say, the presence of nicotine so we can get as close as possible. It's never fully possible to look at causation. And what I'm less, I'm doing more of now, because it's essential, is more of these observational studies, naturalistic studies where you're collecting data, right? And those are a lot of the correlation studies where it's much harder to talk about causation. But in reality, I feel those can be more real world, which can be honestly more helpful than these very contrived controlled studies, which I advocate for, but I think having both is essential. Right. Yeah. My only question is, do you have any pets? I know that's a weird question. Oh, okay. Well, you might get me really emotional. So I don't currently, I had a cat. He was very mean. Oh. His name's Ashmont, but he was my best friend and he lived to 15. Cancer got oh, wow. him. But, um, I will admit like there's a lot of pictures of him around. So I think I still can say I have a pet. <laughs> I was going to say, if you had pets, that could be the and associates. Yeah. Oh, there you go. You said you didn't That's have any beautiful. associates. I have Ashmont's... two furry associates. So, there... <laughs> Hey, I always said, cause fake it till you make it, you know, I mean, yeah. you people, a lot of people thought we were a lot bigger than we were way back in the day in 2010, 2011, just because, you know, and yeah. Danielle makes us look, way way bigger she with all of her graphics and stuff I we love just it. we look all slick but <laughs> i'm gonna put this banner up just so everybody is aware it right. is true we are grassroots af yeah. that's a very <laughs> that's a very real thing uh but yeah wow i feel like I, a i could talk to you for hours about drugs but that's not what we're here for today um so i'm gonna let uh Kristen, who who set up our our kind of show notes and and all of this today. Thank you so much, Kristen, for getting everything around because I was just a, a bum out shoveling snow all weekend. Um, so well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give the floor over to Kristen, and and I'm sure along the way I'm gonna have plenty of, of questions and things like that to throw into this conversation. So and and you know this is a very loosely organized thing, so we're just gonna kind of wing it. But I thought that one of the things we could start off with was sort of covering the definite definitions as far as they. Um, go in 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 science and 
correlation was one of them, but before I ask you about it, I wanted to share this with people. Um, this is a really great website that just kind of shows you the problem mm -hmm. with correlation um, and how it can be kind of manipulated. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them on here. We've got mm -hmm. U.S. spending on science, space, and technology, how it correlates with suicides by hanging, strangulation, and suffocation. Wow, look at They must be related. Um, but they're not, obviously one's not causing the other. Uh, mm -hmm. Films Nicolas Cage appeared versus the number of people who drowned by falling into a pool. <laughs> um, that's that's quality science right there. <laughs> per capita cheese consumption versus the number of people who die by becoming tangled in their bed sheets. <laughs> so Does this, this only happens if you eat cheese in bed, though, right? <laughs> I have no idea. But I will share the, the link to that because that is kind of the gist of correlation in a lot of ways. Um, wouldn't you say, Annie? I mean, how would you define correlation as far as it goes with vape studies? Right. Well, if you want to write into correlation versus causation, we can do that too. But but I'm thinking starting about what correlation means and how how it appears in, in a lot of these vape studies. Yeah. So, I mean, basic um, way I view it is just a relationship between two or more variables. So um, we as humans in the way our brains work, we're constantly doing this, like our executive function. If we don't do that, we start facing challenges, right? With like getting through our life and day to day, because, you know, if X, then Y, but then different from causation, we don't have to dig right in there in that causation is where you are seeing one variable sort of predicting or the result of another variable. So you really have directionality, whereas correlation is just saying there's there it could be bi-directional, there could be a multitude of variables impacting it. <clears throat> the way causation is able to be targeted is controlling all these other potential variables. So in all those examples you showed, there's a slew, right, of other variables that are impacting those relationships. And of course, right you know, humans, are, our brain is designed to try to make sense of the world in that way. We're really not accurate a lot of the time. We can often think that there is a cause and be, you know, not be taking into account all the variables because it is very complex. We very much look for patterns and things. That's why you yes. see superstitions are a perfect, you know, example of correlation you know or even the, the old nursery rhyme or whatever you want to call it of step on a crack break, break your mother's back you know there, there there's no correlation nothing there's nothing supporting that but but or you know people you hear about like baseball players who like wear the shorts of the opposing team before every big game because at one point they did that and they won and now there, there's this correlation but clearly wearing shorts of the opposing team is not going to cause you to win the game and there's a whole lot of other factors for winning the game um and then for causation um what does it take to get to for correlate for how do they get from correlation to causation is that a good way to put it maybe yeah um so i will say when you have the ability to control the variables so what this could look like is you bring someone into the lab, you make sure they haven't eaten for the 12 hours before, you make sure they haven't smoked, you use a CO monitor, you control the, the, the lighting, you control the people they're exposed to, right? Then you put a nicotine patch 
on their back. They don't know the dose. You're controlling their awareness of what I'm talking more about my dissertation research. And then you have them smoke a cigarette two hours after that. They don't know what that cigarette is, what ha is in it. Um, we gave people cigarettes with nicotine and without. So then we'd look at how does withdrawal respond to this? That's a really good way to start pinpointing, you know, what's the role of nicotine versus the cues when you are suppressing withdrawal. And as we know, they're very closely related, but you can, when you start manipulating in very controlled settings, you can get closest to causation. But as a scientist, you should always, and this is a problem often in the nicotine tobacco field, among others, you should always think of this as this is our best approximation of causation at this time, if you can talk about it. And mm. you should be cautious saying causal. And so I think the perfect example with that versus correlation is the 1964 Surgeon General's report. So in that report, they say, or they they, they make the, the conclusion that that had been made before, but they made it on a public level, smoking causes lung cancer. They say that, lung cancer. Now, there was a lot of correlational data that brought them to that answer, a lot of population level data, right? But in combination across different levels of evidence, animal research, which was way more controlled, you know, years of population and biological plausibility, they felt confident, which I think was appropriate to say cause. So it doesn't require that really heavy manipulation that I did say in a dissertation study to get to causality, but you certainly have a higher burden on you if you're only looking at studies that say, I walk out my door at Baltimore, I start counting how many people are vaping outside bars, and then I also collect a, a random other variable and connect those. There, you know, um, that's a way less controlled, way less, there's so much interference. Right. So because by I don't know happenstance, everybody who vapes in town could have been at the bar that day. And right. now you have this, this kind of, false uh yeah. view of of you know that doesn't necessarily extrapolate across population you just observing right. a bunch of people at a bar and you'd have i suppose you'd have to you could use correlation studies that have shown some correlation but then you have to show the correlation between the a and b and then between a and d and a and c and e and f and, and, and get all those possible variables accounted for um, which a lot of times is what on a lot of vape studies you see listed if you scroll down yeah. under limitations, you know, right? Because, because they're a they're a, a cross sectional study, or um, you know they're not they're not clinical. They're only following people for a certain time period, um, and there's just so many other things we see that a lot with um, with the gateway studies, you know. Uh, and there's some other stuff too that we'll get into in a minute because I do have some, I got some example ones. Plus you, I wanted you to talk about your 2016 uh, certain general thing. The last one I, I kind of wanted to cover before we got into the studies, because I think the other two uh, definitions we can bring up as we're talking about them, but could you explain what reverse causality is? Because as I was looking at these studies, I mean, I, I know what it is, but I had to look it up and figure out exactly what it was because I came across this a lot. Um, a lot of it, again, was with, well, the heart attack study. Mm -hmm. uh, that reverse causality got mentioned a lot. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel and Patel um, did a uh, rebuttal to that, to Stanton Glantz's heart attack study. And reverse causality came up a lot. And they kept saying, no, 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 we accounted for that. 
And I was like, what makes it reverse? I don't understand. So do, can you, do you think you could explain that in a simple way that folks could understand? Yeah. And I find this one confusing too. So hopefully I don't botch it, but um, sort of reviewing my notes on it. Cause these are like, you know, in a basic behavioral statistics class, like you sort of get some insight, although it's so confusing, but it's when an event is a consequence, not a cause of something. And so I do think the heart attack or cardiovascular thing also like um, people, like an example, I found a study where it's, you know, people who use e-cigarettes are more likely to have cancer, but it's suggesting that using e-cigarettes causes cancer, but it's, it, it is actually more likely, um, and Clive Bates went into this with one of the studies, that perhaps there's a diagnosis of cancer that makes you stop smoking, or maybe your health is getting, you smoked for 40, 50 years, you switch to e-cigarettes as a harm reduction tool. Now it's correlated with this cancer outcome. But the main cause, right, was the 40 to 50 years of combustible tobacco use. So it's getting the directionality switched, which I think Lance my take, and you know, I have a whole other one on him and uh, him suggesting e-cigarettes actually reduce the likelihood of smoking cessation. And it was a, a meta-analysis, Cal Corin and Glantz. This was like, this is what I do, systematic reviews. And he'd sort of done the same thing. He'd used a lot of observational studies. And often it was people highly dependent, right, on smoking because they'd done it for so long, trying to switch to e-cigarettes. And these were, you know, products that were different many years ago. So maybe not delivering as much nicotine. And he was just saying, oh, that means causation. But it was actually, they were highly dependent, which makes quitting smoking hard. So hopefully I'm not getting us confused, but I do think it's a big part of the the misinformation coming out. Yeah, that was my understanding of it too, that that, that they skipped that reverse causality that um, it, it's a chicken or the egg thing is what it is. And they're, they're, they're deciding what's the chicken and what's that, what came first instead of, and, and, and ignoring some of those other causes. You see that with the gateway thing too, as far as, as youth who, you know, you've got, and, and that was, well, I may as well bring it up. Uh, that was this one, which is common liability and uh, which are shared risk factors. So they'll say, well, you know, three times more likely to smoke if they vape and they insinuate that that's because vaping caused them to smoke. And, and I do have a study here that when we get to it, we'll do that after your uh, SGR one. But um, the, the, you know, they say, oh, we, 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 uh, we, we accounted for these different society factors and, and reasons why they would smoke otherwise. Um, and, and it still turns out that even if they, that people who would have never smoked are more likely to, to vape and then smoke. Which may, you know, there, I mean, there's a couple of reasons that makes no sense. They, they argue that flavors are why kids want to vape, and then mm -hmm. they say, well, they're going to go away from bubblegum flavor to cigarettes, which makes no sense. Um, but but exactly, they 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 skip over that a lot of the people who would have otherwise been smoking have chosen vaping instead. You know, mm -hmm. because they don't misunderstand that it's safer, they understand that it's safer. So. And common liability. So that's what that means is that is that somebody who's already going to smoke is likely it has higher um, risk taking behaviors and will um, 
you know, if, if they're going to try vaping, they might also drive fast. They might also try dry, try alcohol. They may also, you know, try to ski off the top of their roof with a sled or something. You know, I mean, they're a risk-taking type person. And they also have other factors like, do their parents smoke? Mm -hmm. Do their, does their, their friends smoke? I mean, those are all risk factors that, I mean, they already know that, what is it, like two times more likely to smoke, if not more, if your parents smoke? Mm -hmm. You never see them talking about that. Or asking about much of that in in like the the surveys and stuff, and that seems to be a no brainer. But um, and uh, I guess what we can do is go into if you want to share your screen, we could go into uh, into yeah. the study that you did that kind of covers. I'm gonna, whoops, I still have that on there. Hold on, let me get. Let's that. see if we can make it work. I may not be able to make it work, and I don't have anything fancy, so that's cool if I can't. That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. We're never we're I never fancy here. Links to <laughs> Yeah, That's fancy good. is not what we do best. Cool. I'm not very fancy. Let's see if this works. Um, so let's see if I can you all see it? Um, I see it at the bottom of my screen, but I'm having trouble getting up. It's honestly just so I can just oh wait. Can you see it now? I just brought it up for you. Oh. <laughs> all right. Let me see if I can make this uh present. Yeah, I don't maybe you don't have the button to to physically add it to the stream or not, but um Oh, that's weird. Yeah, it's okay. all yours Good. now. Whenever And whenever you want me to take it down, just let me know. Cool. Okay, actually, this was that Calcord and Glance thing. Um, I happy. Oh, wait. Of course I did that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, sorry these slides are so basic. I just put them together today. But to give everybody a snapshot, I already mentioned the 1964 report. I'm going to contrast that with the 2016 report that focused on youth and young adults and e-cigarettes. So the 64 report was the first one. Um, it's cited a lot. If you look at the way they reviewed evidence, and I mentioned how they had to combine a lot of data, they were very, very cautious. Um, they actually had uh, people associated with the tobacco companies. Uh, re they, they were reviewing evidence, too, and providing feedback. It was a much more open dialogue then um, because you do want to get input from all. It doesn't mean you need uh, you know, private sector industry on the committee, but you need diverse viewpoints. Um, that's when they mentioned you know, causation of lung cancer. They were very cautious to say for other health conditions that later they tied more to smoking. It was correlation. So it's sort of a good example of using that caution. And they were very cautious around nicotine as an addictive substance, which of course later in the 80s became you know, a bigger topic. So my, my thing, and I'm happy to share this with anyone that's interested, um, you know, I, I started reading this 2016 report. And this is as a person that had just lost her dad, who was 63, had smoked for 40 years. He died in his sleep, of, likely of a heart attack. It was, you know, he had a vape device, but he hadn't quit. So I was very sensitive to the other end of the population. So I was reading it with that in mind and my history of doing systematic reviews. And the first thing I noticed is if you look at the beginning of the report, and I promise this relates to causation, they say selected studies from 2016 have been added during the review process that provide further support for the conclusions in this report. This is a damning statement of bias, confirmation mm -hmm. bias. And this is a key part of how correlation, reverse causation, all these, um, honestly, errors in connecting variables can happen because you, this is saying we only added evidence when it provided support for conclusions they'd already made. That is biased. And often we do that intellectually. So say another person had been reading this report 
They were uh, a mom of an adolescent. They had never smoked in their life or used nicotine. They didn't have any family members that had used nicotine. And they're reading this report and their bias may be to read it and think nicotine's harmful. No one uses it anymore. No one smokes. I've had people ask me that. Who smokes anymore? I'm like, a lot of people. <laughs> and And so what I'm trying to say is this report tried to integrate evidence. They used it on the name and on the, the record of previous Surgeon General's report, but it was very biased. It was a very rushed report. And I believe that report contributed to a lot of the policy, the, the push. There's still like um, what the website for it still has all this information about nicotine damaging the brain. And that's really where I went at it. It was missing a lot of quality, high quality evidence. So the evidence they integrated was often correlational. It wasn't a lot of controlled studies, which can really get rid of some of these extra variables. Um, and with the nicotine in the brain, which is what I had studied all these years, one, they didn't cite a meta-analysis I had published on nicotine's effects as a cognitive enhancer. That's Heishman and colleagues. I'm the second one on that. And why wouldn't you cite that? And they really made strong conclusions about nicotine harming attention. And this is really played out um, largely. Yet all the evidence they looked, they cited, four, they had 12 studies in this section that I profiled. Four were looking at smoking among adolescents. Well, you can't talk about nicotine's effects alone mm -hmm. if you're looking at smoking. You know, there's 4,000 other substances and a lot of rodent studies, which is fine. Those can be highly controlled, but often the dosing that of nicotine that occurs in those studies is much higher. You're looking at cognition in rodents, which is really hard to translate to adults. So I think why this one stood out to me and why I still feel angry about it, I published this in 2018, so it's five years, um, is that, I, you know, people, I felt they were so biased that they weren't able to look at causation and discuss it accurately. Not only was this in the, you know, the evidence integration I mentioned here, um, when I challenged Brian King at SRNT in 2017, I stood up, my knees were shaking, I was shaking so much because, you know, a person in power, but I, who am I? And I said, you know, it doesn't make sense. You don't have these studies that show that nicotine alone, you know, actually is more beneficial to a pregnant woman's fetus than smoking. That's a, a study out of the UK, a controlled trial. And his, his saying then was like, well, I didn't fully write this report. It was contractors. He was very defensive. And then when they responded to me, of course, they shot down my views because I was affiliated with Penny Associates, which was affiliated with Reynolds. And, but I think it gets at causation, correlation, and how this is really plaguing the truth we know. And we have known before vaping, before uh, vaporized nicotine came on the market, the nicotine is a, such a different beast than when you combine it um, with other components and with smoking. And you're, feel free to, um, you know, take off my slides now. Uh, hopefully I didn't get too off on that. Well, I was, like, I was, uh, note really quick a few things um if you wanted uh to make that kind of full screen again here you mentioned oh, oh, confirmation sorry. bias and so for people out there that, yeah. that may not understand that that's where you have this kind of predetermined idea or notion and what you're looking for is evidence that supports that not the not the evidence across the board not what all of the evidence is pointing to but very specific cherry picking, if you will, for studies, whether or not they're quality studies that reaffirm your 
idea or whatever it is that you have uh, in mind. And and I was just going to say that this is literally the self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. That's that's what that is. It's saying, you know, we already we already believe this is, you know, this is the the cause here. We're going to find whatever we can, those selected studies to support that. And you're right. That is a that's a massive red flag. Like you can't lay it out any clearer that that that's what you're doing. Yeah. 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 And, I, yeah. and I will say confirmation bias is a natural bias of the human brain. It really helps us to function because if if we thought and had um, detailed intellectual conversations like this all the time to try to piece out causation, we would be exhausted. So we've got to have these heuristics, these shortcuts. So it's confirmation bias can be insidious because it's really hard to see in yourself. And I'll use a personal example, you know, had multiple bad relationships, didn't trust men. And so when I meet my boyfriend who I've been with several years now, I'm constantly on the lookout for anything he would do that would repeat those bad things in the past. And I wasn't aware of how much that can sabotage your honestly, uh, reality because you're you're it's a confirmation bias and I, I you do that right like your brain can do it and you have to to deconstruct that you have to do a lot of conscious awareness of the bias do a lot sure. of self-reflection a lot of humility um because you've got to question your own thoughts and i would say that academic medicine is not a place that really facilitates humility and often when you power, <laughs> right? The head of CPP, um, the the head of a Surgeon General's report, maybe humility isn't something that they've had to practice a lot. But I would say it's key for removing confirmation bias. But I also don't want to sit up here and act like I am great at this. I'm certain that I do confirmation bias with harm reduction evidence and can get a little over the top with like everywhere I see it. This is harm reduction, and so. I have to watch myself, but yes, it's, it's a key part of this report, which I think 2016 report is very symbolic of how the conversation and the bias has gone around this whole topic of vaping. You're right. And it's, yeah, it's absolutely not just in science. It's in our everyday lives. And we, we put those blinders on when we get an idea in our head, we put the blinders on and we only focus on the things that reaffirm what we have going on in our head, as opposed to looking at the broader picture, looking at the big picture taking everything in um which is what good science should do right yeah well it's just like how okay, yeah, they, I, I can take how this they, down if you wanted me to okay. now yeah. but it was like it was like i was saying before of how they choose to view the chicken or the egg coming first you yeah. know their confirmation biases really comes into play there because they choose to believe that it's the vaping causing the issue and in ignore or cherry pick there's another term that comes up yep. i think logan just said that too and there's a couple studies on here that you can see where they do that but uh yeah the, the confirmation bias is definitely something that you see all the time and it, you oh i see kids vaping everywhere and <laughs> and, it's, and then as soon as they see one it's like well it is everywhere that you know kids do that teenagers do that everybody does it mom everybody's going to the party mom you know it's mm-hmm. just like no, it's not everybody <laughs> But uh, yeah, so um, I think what I was going to do is start with, uh, let's see here. This was, speaking of some stuff here, um, which part of my screen do I have on here? Uh, This one, I don't know if you have, okay. 
Uh, I'm trying to bring it up so I can see it too. Um, okay, so there was a couple with linking e-cigarettes with adolescents and young adults then going on to smoking. And uh, one of them that I came across here was, um, this one I think was from, was this one? This was the one from 2017. So this was from before the real peak in 2019. Um, and it was really interesting because they, where did it come up? Uh, systematic review meta-analysis showed strong and consistent evidence of an association between initial e-cigarette use and subsequent smoking initiation, as well as past 30 day. And I think with this one, um, it was a meta-analysis and it had these, I can't say it, <laughs> longitudinal, longitudinal. Mm -hmm. um, there you go. Studies and, um, well, here's the odds ratio among baseline and never smokers, cigarette smoking initiation between baseline and follow-up. And, and really with this one, it was, um, I'm trying to remember because I don't have my notes up with me. Uh, so they say that they adjusted for, and here, mm. adjusted for known demographic, uh, mm -hmm. psychosocial and behavioral risk factors for cigarette smoking and pool the odds to ratio for subse subsequent <coughs> cigarette smoking initiation, which was huge versus never never users. Um, and um, so they said e-cigarette use was associated with greater risk for smoking and strong e-cigarette regulation could potentially curb use among youth and possibly limit future population level burden of smoking. So this was from uh, 2017 and we know now what happened. Um, this, <laughs> you know, uh, vaping went, went up and smoking went down and there really was no gateway. I mean, you can see what happened between 2012 and 2022 and there's just no evidence for that. Yet they came up with all this risk and all their, all their numbers added up, you know? So I don't know if they didn't account for other factors, again, like uh, risk-taking behaviors, whether or not the parents smoked. And I don't even think they looked at whether or not um, their friends smoked or whatnot. Um, but that was one of the things that was a, seemed to me a correlation, but I wasn't sure how to get around the whole thing about it being um, that they accounted for those social things. And I don't know if these uh, longitudinal studies are better than cross-sectional are they are they that much different would you say i mean how would you interpret this if you were were us <laughs> yeah so longitudinal are considered a higher quality of evidence in that because you are controlling for time hopefully although there can be flaws but i think i remember this study and i apologize i i definitely did a deep dive it's when it happened i think there the there is a whole issue with how they the common liability issue like how they controlled for other variables and, and that's a big thing. These, these type of studies, you, you're doing a lot of modeling. You're, you're taking in variables best you can collect them. But if you're not able to collect those variables that might be um, explaining the association and would reduce that effect size, because, you know, you have like, if you think of like behavior, like here's your circle of why a behavior happens. So, you know, gateway. But there's all like if you piece apart like a Venn diagram, there's all these other explanations for that behavior. And my understanding is like they were criticized heavily for how they 
sort of accounted for potential confounding variables or other variables that could explain it in particular, right? Account for. Yeah. So like, I believe on, again, I haven't, um, I haven't looked at it recently is definitely a flawed analysis. Now we thought that then now it's so, it's so bizarre, right? It doesn't match the real world. So it does add some evidence that they weren't, whatever they were measuring wasn't fully accounted for. In yeah, the I mean, they were trying to say that the hand to mouth thing was going to make kids want to smoke and uh, inhaling pleasurable flavors may provide. Where did that go? I just had it. Uh, oh, in addition, it, inhaling yeah, pleasurable flavor flavors one is the one that really a positive sensory experience. And then they're going to want to yeah. smoke like there's anything. That's why I, th- I always laugh when they say menthol hides the harsh taste of smoke in vapor products. It's like, what? <laughs> you guys have there's no, no taste of smoke in vapor products right? to begin with um, but one of the but things that, that really, I it really to always comes to me i guess you know i there i always think maybe there's something to things like sensory input when we're talking about smoking and vaping which is one of the major reasons why vaping works so well for people yeah. who smoke is all those sensory needs hand to mouth olfactory uh visual stimuli the whole the whole nine but the flavor one is what really always gets me you know say you have a, a young person uh who vapes and they're their favorite flavor is strawberry bubble gum. And they, you know, they, they switch to smoking because ash tastes so right? much better. <laughs> that strawberry bubble gum led them down the road to, to burning ash. <laughs> and if you look at this, they're I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe there's one or two out there, but I just, right? it's just, you know, as somebody who used to smoke and now vapes, it's just one of those things you know i think where personal experience comes into play and you just go i just i just don't buy it <laughs> yeah i mean and somebody who was in the very earliest days of vaping well not the various earliest but very early days in 2009 i remember when people were chasing that ash taste they were trying to figure out how yeah, can i make yeah, this not people, taste so sweet how can companies. i you know make it taste more like smoking and then they just pretty much just got used to not having it but I mean, I just I just find it funny that they're insisting that if I mean they even talk about it here about how you should basically uh, ban mm. flavors and restrict the advertising and stuff like that, um, while arguing that they're going to go on to smoke because of the flavors. It just makes no sense. But one of the things that I usually do is I'll scroll down to the bottom and try to see if I can find the the limitations, um, which I didn't find here. But I do agree with you. I, I do believe that that was one of those cases. Um, another one that actually uh came out more recently this past november was called the impact of the e-cigarette era on cigarette smoking among youth in the united Hmm. states a population level study and this one uh we actually just tweeted about recently and uh a rebuttal that somebody had uh published to this making a few points and that was on clive's uh list too but um this one this one really was to me an example of cherry picking um because if you look at it, they chose, you know, they said among all students past their day smoking declined um, 0.75% per year from 2002 to 2013. And then following a significant drop in prevalence from 2013 to 2014, which they don't try to explain, uh, the decline in the past 30 day cigarette smoking slowed significantly to approximately only 37 
0.37% per year from 2015 to 2019, mm. we estimate that the onset of the e-cigarette era in 2014 corresponded to 1.66 million, uh, more than the past e-cigarette smokers from 2015, 2019. So the irony of this one is because after I read this, I went and I did a chart because I thought, well, why did they start with 2014? First of all, I've been vaping since 2009. 2012 right. is when they first started recording it in the surveys, in the, the um, CDC surveys. And why didn't they go back to that? And not only that, the whole different time period uh, from say 2002 to 2012, and then you're skipping two years and then going 2014 to 2019. And what, so what I did is I went back and I charted that just from 2002, 2012 to 2022, nice 10-year uh, spans there. And it came out like this. And then I put the trend line in there. If you if you're going to follow where that blue line, that blue arrow was going to go, if it just keep continuing. I know this is not like scientific, but it does show the trend line of the direction it was going and this weird veer off in 2012, the first year when they started tracking all this, and you know that kids have been started vaping really a year or two before that, they only started tracking it in 2012. Um, it, it just it, it just veers, starts veering down. And if that trend line had followed, um, we'd be above 5% now, not at 2%. And the thing is, is that in 2014, the rate had gone down already to I want to believe 8.8% mm -hmm. or something. I'd have to pull it back up again. But um, it was already, the, the, the healthy people 2020 goal for adolescent cigarette smoking was 16% for 2020. Hmm. And, and by 2014, it was already down to like 8% or something like that. And so now you're looking at dropping from 22.9% in 2002 all the way down to 14%, which okay, that's a good drop. But in 2012, it dropped from 14 to 2%. And you can't, what happened? It wasn't tobacco 21. That didn't happen until 2019. Uh, but it just, it seems like they cherry picked and it just kind of randomly like, oh, there was a big drop in, you know, 2013 or 2014, but don't look at that. <laughs> We're talking about dropping, how fast it started dropping from now 8% or whatever it was to 2%. So of course it's going to be slower. You're getting to those super low numbers where fewer and fewer you're going to have more inveterate people who are who are pretty much embedded in smoking and are not going to quit. You're getting down to the the diehards there like me, um, who said I was never going to quit because I, um, I I ended up switching to vaping, but I, I I thought I was going to die smoking. So there's going to be a specific segment of the population that's going to be like that. So as you get closer and closer to zero, mm -hmm. it's going to get slower and slower, don't you think? So do you think that they cherry picked, as we talked about before there, that starting at 2014 instead of 2012 and, um, you know, because what is that from 14 to 22? That's, that's an 8.9 percentage point drop and then a 12 percentage point drop between 2012 and 2022, but they chose 2014. Mm -hmm. So it's a smaller drop because there was that huge drop between 2012 and 2014. That just kind of. Yeah. So that? 
I think I haven't read the article. I, I did see that Flo had done that critique, which is great. Um, I, I bet that they had to address that in their thing, like why they chose 2014. If they don't, that would be a glaring, you know, insight into that. Um, my other hunch is like Flo's critique probably gets at things they did not control for in mm-hmm. their analysis and like they're, they're draw. So I think it gets at your correlation causation thing. Um, does Flo in this critique, does he have like a bottom line? Uh, well, yeah, I love his bottom line. It says, in conclusion, the analysis by Haral et al. is flawed and does not provide convincing evidence for the existence yeah. of a gateway effective population level. But he brought up mainly, he brought up, um, uh, does not fully discuss the competing population level trend literature. So all the stuff out there that says it's not leading to smoking, basically. Yeah, that's that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, excludes new, uh, the mm-hmm. National Youth Tobacco Survey data prior to tw- 2002. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if that was as important, but I think that them skipping over the what happened in 2012, because they just randomly chose 2014 as being the beginning of the e-cigarette era, which it wasn't, dudes, kind of in the middle of the e-cigarette era. Mm. Um, fits a discontinuous piecewise uh, model that interrupted time. Do you think a lot of people data. consider that uh, the beginning of the e-cigarette era just because we associate it so much with Juul? That was, they didn't come out to 2015 though. Didn't Jewel release initially in 2014, late 2014? I don't think so I, I want to say 2015. I want to say 2015. Interesting. Because yeah. um, I, I, I get that idea a lot when people talk about this e-cigarette era and we talk about that kind of 2014, 2015 time. Hmm. And, and I think a lot of people just associate it completely and utterly with Jewel. And we forget yeah. the thousands of other vapor products that came before oh, yeah. the jewel was ever in existence. Um, right. But yeah, that's, and that's he right says, around the time of. Right. Yeah, and I think that's what they do. But, and he says here, it says it uses 2014 as the cutoff year to distinguish between the e-cigarette era and before. Mm-hmm. This year coincides with the change uh, um, in this questionnaire wording that's known to produce systematically higher e-cigarette prevalence estimates. For one, e-cigarettes were not introduced in 2014, but circa 2006, 2007. And 2006 is identified as the knee of the data mm. by an alternative. Hmm. I don't know. I didn't understand that. What's the knee? I don't know if you understand that. Um, yeah. uh, e-cigarette use uh, in the survey increased huh. by over 170% wow. from 2011 to 2013, the impact of which is discounted by using 2014 as a cutoff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's. That, that's one of those situations where um, they were cherry picking. Uh, it, so that's a little bit different from, from the uh, correlation versus causation thing. But again, for them to come out and say that this data proves, where did they put that in their conclusion? Um, essentially, they say, uh, the rate of decline in the past 30-day cigarette smoking prevalence among adolescents observed since 20, 2002 slowed with the onset of the e-cigarette era in 2014, providing evidence at a population level for the gateway effect. So, I mean, they're, they're insinuating that more that more youth started smoking than otherwise would have had vaping not existed, but... I don't know where they get that from. I mean, <laughs> it's so clear that it took a nosedive. Smoking took a no. Even if you don't follow that trend line, um, it's so clear that in 2012, it just took a nosedive. And between 2012 and 2022, it dropped much faster 
than it was between 2002 and 2012. But they chose to start 2014, which if you look at those numbers, then oh, it's not as big of a drop because it only went from 8% to 2% instead of 14% to 2% in the full 10 year span, you know? So mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting I, one. I did just do a little uh, uh, Google foo over here i was wrong it was the summer of 2015 that jewel officially released in the u.s so a year yep. prior to that is when they're they're going back to which also to me just instinctively just because you know we hear so much about the e-cigarette era being in that time it's like so they knew jewel released in 2015 so let's just compensate we'll just go one year back we don't need anything mm -hmm. from before that, right you know well because that, that should be sufficient enough to look at pre-jewel era you know that was cherry picking they're making the numbers look better and they're i'm going to put all these links into the into the into the um description but this one is a, a really interesting one because they just looked at all of this stuff including the one that i just showed or no the two before the first earlier one uh because this was from 2020 uh they actually looked at that 2017 one and said the relationship between e-cigarette use and conventional cigarette smoking is largely attributed to shared risk factors and that's where we're looking back again at that um at that shared risk factors you know the the why am i blanking on what the other thing it's called um but uh so this was a good one too that that they did that with. So uh, another one that you see a lot of, and this is kind of right in your wheelhouse, um, mm. is the depression and anxiety symptoms are linked to vaping nicotine and THC in teens and young adults. And th this is where you like to see in the news, where you like, like to see, where you will often see in the news. And for a lot of these, and that, that was what really got me is the media often reports these things as showing causation, mm -hmm. you know, uh, e-cigarettes may cause heart attacks. E-cigarettes may cause worse lung damage than, than, you know, they put that little may in there, but the big things that people see are e-cigarettes worse than smoking. Um, and there is an abstract for this one, but in this one, they said a study of more mm -hmm. than 2,500 people ages 13 to 24 found that nicotine only vapors, THC only vapors and dual vapors were more likely to report anxiety symptoms, depressive symptoms and suicidal thoughts when compared with their peers who did not use electronic cigarettes. Now, if you stop there, which most people will read the headline and maybe a couple lines if they get that far, um, you would be led to think that it's that vaping that's causing the symptoms. I mean, right. you probably see that all the time, right? So, um, and then even the quotes that, you know, younger people uh, have long been vulnerable to tobacco use may experience greater harm from nicotine and other drugs and may be targeted by yeah. tobacco advertisers and marketers. Again, it's it's making it seem like they're targeted and they're going to be damaged more and it's causing this anxiety and this and this stress. Um, Brain I don't worms. know if you had a chance to look yeah. at this one or not. No, but I, I think more broadly, I mean, we're seeing national trends of mental health conditions among younger populations, right? So increases in depression, increases anxiety. There's like stepping away from nicotine. There's a lot of reasons for that. There's awareness. So teens are maybe more likely to predict or report it, but there's also, um, you know, there's situational things. Then you're trying to connect that. So you've got this growing number with depression or anxiety in general to another trend, which is a larger number, not that many, honestly, of teens using nicotine through vaping and all that. And then you're connecting it. And did they control for those common liabilities? Did they control for growing up in a home that had traumatic experiences that trauma directly predicts 
both substance use, including nicotine, tobacco, and it predicts depression and anxiety. So there you get that additional variable. The, right. I mean, that's one of many. That, yeah. Sure. Yeah. This kind of goes back to uh, like what you were just talking about. You have these two separate trends that we're trying to piece together. That yeah. kind of that first uh, those slides or that first site that Kristen showed us. U.S. spending on science and space, you know, correlating to suicides by hanging. Um, so you have right. these two very similar trends that are happening at the same time, which may or may not have an actual you know causational yep. link there, but we're we're really trying to make one. Yep. And this is a good example of reverse causality, you know, of do do teens vape and then get depressed and anxious or are right. depressed and anxious kids more likely to vape? Yeah. And to me, I think it's really an easy, it's a no brainer because you look at a lot of populations and communities where stressors are higher, mental health is higher, lack of, of uh, help for mental health is is, mm -hmm. um, is is a problem. So you look at uh, low income populations, you look at minority populations, you look at LGBTQ plus populations, uh, teenagers in general, um, people who are suffering from mental health issues. I, I I don't know a single person in my in real life who either smokes or vapes who doesn't have some kind of mental health concern I want I don't want to say issue but there's you know uh stress anxiety uh there are people also people who do things like they bite their nails or they twirl their hair or um they're they're they may do other drugs as well or um very anxious OCD you know I don't, I don't necessarily mean this is people who are who are uh psychotic or uh have very severe problems, which those people also are known to do that. Because in my opinion, they're self-medicating. I don't need an antidepressant. You know what I mean? Because nicotine is working just fine for me. Um, so I definitely didn't, I definitely don't believe those problems came from, I mean, I have a family history. My mom didn't smoke and she has a family history of, you know, she has, she had a clinical depression. So, and took medications for it that messed her up big time. Um, she was on what was that one that back in the 80s or 90s that was causing suicidal thoughts and stuff like that? She was on that and she had a really bad reaction with that. So, yeah, I, I, that's one of those things with the chicken and the egg sort of thing where they're they're taking these associations and saying once it's causing it. And like what this guy says, the products were developed as smoking cessation tools for those that use traditional cigarettes. So I'm very curious now what the implications are with mental health and users who are using these products to help stop smoking. I mean, strongly implying that when you're trying to quit smoking and you're going to switch to vaping, that it's going to give you a mental health issue. Yeah. Well, another question, do, did they look at smoking in this or did they only look at vaporized THC and nicotine? Like where is the relative right. risk? Because if yeah, they I didn't look at smoking, why is he even talking about it? And also that's a flawed study. I heard a scientist say recently, we, I'm sorry, and I know we're at time, but like, no, we need to stop comparing vaping to smoking. It is no longer, and I'm like, that what? is insane. Like, they're yeah. like, why yeah. would you? Because, like, right? And it also, this is how causality is taken into account. Also, add in some other things teens use: premarital sex or unprotected sex or whatever teens are doing. You know, like all the crazy things we did, whippets. You know, other drugs. Are you taking that into account, or is it just this strange 
2,000 people that only vaped, which honestly are probably from a higher socioeconomic status because vaping correlates or it hasn't historically with young people that are white and from higher class. So it's like, anyway, sorry, it's just irritating to see that. Oh, no, no. That, that's <laughs> it's good to have comment. somebody ranting except me this time. <laughs> yeah, and one of the yeah. things that always stood out to me is, you know, uh, like Kristen was talking about socioeconomic impacts, um, low-income populations, things like this, um, are, are where we still see the highest smoking prevalence. And I think one of the big glaring things we often skip over is, you know, right after that 1964 Surgeon General's report came out, we did see a massive drop in smoking yep. in this country, but we really only saw it in the well-to-do affluent white population in this country. People who weren't experiencing those same stress factors and those same, yep. uh, you know, societal issues found it the easiest to go, okay, I'll quit smoking. And we've yeah, kind of whittled it down from there. But that biggest drop was still essentially right after that report came out. And the population that, you know, I guess essentially had it the easiest, found it the easiest to quit. And we've kind of whittled it down from there. Um, but I always think that's that's such a big thing when we talk about, uh, you know, smoking population and risk factors, socio socioeconomic impacts, all these things. And we look at, well, who found it the easiest right out of the gate when we said smoking was bad? And it was the well-to-do, affluent, healthy white population in this country. Yeah, they probably switched to other drugs they had access to. Sure. Like Why drugs? smoke when you have cocaine? You know. Oh my God, I was. <laughs> that always made me crazy because they. You argue with people like on Twitter or whatnot, and they always say, "Well, we want this." You know, it's great that they're switching to this stuff, but then they need to get off of nicotine. You know, they need to be absent from nicotine. That's the ultimate goal. And I'm like, well, that might be your ultimate goal, but it's not mine. Um, and they, they don't want to acknowledge any of the benefits, but they, they're they in this la-la land where they think everyone's going to quit nicotine and they're going to become, you know, they're going to do meatless Mondays and exercise every day uh -huh. and um, become A students. I, I don't know what they think. They don't, it's like they don't think it's going to be replaced by anything. And it's like people are self-medicating. I know I am, it's, but to me, I, I'd have no nails if I didn't vape. And I'd probably weigh about 500 pounds because, <laughs> you know, and I'm not, my mom, she was morbidly obese after she quit smoking. So, I mean, it, it's, I just don't think they're going to, and here's a good correlation for you. This is what I was thinking of as, as he was talking. A good correlation, I can't prove causation, but a good correlation is since everybody started quitting smoking, we have much higher rates of suicide, much higher rates of um, uh, people using antidepressants and obesity. There's right. a good I mean, correlation for you. It's not causation, exactly but, but, but they won't look at any of that. They won't look to see if any of that's connected because that would be showing how not having nicotine was actually a bad thing for people. Yeah. And I will just add this because I often like subtract out from nicotine and think more broadly on addiction because like I've looked at all these other substances. You know, I met right. SRNT last week, um, by the way, presented on older adults who smoke, which are way more likely to be low SES, less education and non-white no change in smoking prevalence for 20 years in the United States for people 65 and over. So that's a whole other talk I'd be willing to come back right. on. But I'm watching these people and, you know, in closed conversations, they act like the goal is total nicotine abstinence. If you're using an e-cigarette, we got to figure out a way for e-cigarette cessation. Yet they're at the bar drinking 
or they're at the bar, you know, hooking up with someone that's not their partner. And I'm like, why are you cool with the pleasures in your life that happen to not be nicotine? You're allowed to do these things that's quote unquote are moralistically wrong, but nicotine. And to me, it's just, it's become the new, you know, when I grew up in Eastern Kentucky, it was a very Bible belt town. We were dry County. It's the new alcohol. And I, I know I'm preaching in the choir, but being nope. there and it's sort of like, People want pleasure. Again, it's part of our brain. It doesn't mean that I need to eat everything I see, which I want to do sometimes. We clearly need harm reduction. We need ways to do this safely. But yeah, it's almost like out of touch. And honestly, it's people that I feel like in academia that have never had a family member smoke. They're the ones that say to me, who still smokes? You're out of touch. You're not in the communities. You don't come from the family that had it. Yeah. You shouldn't honestly be writing these papers. Sorry. No, no, not at all. It also, is, I, it's just so ironic when you see, uh, can I get the um, Google search words in the, every day to go for doing our blog and our social media posting. And in the same email, I'll get nicotine uh, being studied to help brave cognitive or improve cognitive function. And then right below it will be something saying new studies shows brain damage in teens. Yeah. It's like, how is this doing both these? And they don't even, there's this disconnect, this cognitive, you know, this bias that mm -hmm. they just can't see any benefit because it's been, and it's so funny because like you said, way back in the day, tobacco control was arguing, trying to get people to trust NRT nicotine and to get that passed and get to get that out there for people so they would not expose themselves to smoke. This is safe. You can use this. Try it. We need flavors. They were arguing for flavors for yep. companies to be able to sell flavors because the original flavor like Nicorette or whatever was awful. And they were arguing for flavors. This was tobacco control. And now they're using all these arguments against vaping that, you know, flavors are bad. Teens are going to use it, all that kind of stuff. Somehow the nicotine that's used, same nicotine that's used in e-cigarettes and our NRT, it's the same identical stuff, but the stuff in e-cigarettes is worse. It's worse nicotine because it's higher. They ignore um, self-regulation, self-titration. I mean, Nobody sits there. You don't. You don't see people who smoke end up smoking fifty packs a day because they lose their. They, they get a uh, what do you call that? Um, a tolerance for it, you know. But yet they, they seem to think that. So you can't take a fifty milligram vape and vape it as much. I mean, if I just switch from three to six, it reduces how much I can vape because. Like my store ran out of three and I had to use six and I'm definitely not doing it as much as I was before. So that whole self uh, leveling, self titration or whatever they cause it, they ignore that too. They never talk about that. <laughs> I don't know if you've mm -hmm. noticed that either. Yeah. yeah. Human beings are, are very efficient at titrating. Yeah. Okay. So like, yeah. consumption. We, see, I can rant too. So don't worry about it. <laughs> The only thing that I wanted to, to end this with, because we definitely are at time is, right. is that, you know, I, I, I struggle to understand the abstinence only and prohibitionist mm -hmm. mindset just purely from a human nature and historical view. People have been consuming drugs for thousands of years. We have evidence going back on cannabis, 8,000 some odd years, uh, you know, opiates with opium uh, and the poppy plant going back 6,000 plus years. We have evidence of the, you know, use of cocaine and not necessarily like full cocaine, but coca in itself, uh, thousands of years, again, tobacco. Um, so it's, it's, it's wild to me, like no matter how many dare programs you put out or no matter how much more illegal you make something, 
Um, drugs are very much a part of, of human nature. They are, whether you yourself uses these drugs is irrelevant. But when we look at humans, uh, you know, as a species, as a whole, we use drugs for a whole number of reasons, for so many reasons, for pleasure, for stimulus, for coping, um, for whatever it may be. Um, and and mm -hmm. th this idea that we're going to um, legislate or, or uh, you know, dictate and shame people <laughs> out of something that is so innate to us as, as a, hu you know, as humans um, is just wild. It's so... I don't know if it's just egotistical, if it's yeah. brash, whatever it is that gets people in that mindset that, yes, we can eliminate this thing that yep. is so fundamental to our species. You know, it's it's on par. Drugs are on par with, you know, socializing and, and all of these yeah. other things that are so very human. It's part of us. It's part of our story. Um, it is. It is just astounding. Uh, that people that people can get into that mindset and, and ignore all of that and just go, yeah, no, we can totally we can make this illegal and everybody will stop. Yeah. Yeah. I think they see put it in a box and it's like drug use is somehow this thing to be controlled and not seeing like the way the human brain works is we like to stimulate it. We, we, the whole basis is right. Like the dopamine serotonin interaction, whether it's food, drugs are not that we're just manipulating chemicals. Sure, it's the same molecules, when I was they're not these scary boogeyman things. They're, they're simply molecules that, you know, our brains and bodies react to. And obviously there's so many yes. things that, that work along with that and, and how a person uses drugs and societal factors and stressors, things like this, which can, you know, lead to dependency and whatnot. That's a whole nother right. conversation. Um, but yeah, it, it is really, truly, it will always astound me, you know, mm -hmm. when we have this this vast history that we should and could definitely should be learning from. Yet we, we just like, you know, that that academia, like abstinence only. This is the only way. And and right <laughs> yeah. now, you know, we're setting record highs for overdoses in this country while we're cool. still you know, oh, yeah, pushing for bands. further criminalization and all of these things. It just it just feels like. It just feels so backwards all the time. And then in other areas like psychedelics, we're seeing the light and the, the idea yeah, that all those years, right? But it's not consistent. In Maryland, we're going to have access to legal cannabis this summer. And to me, it's so strange, right? And I know you all talk about this more, but like here we're banning more than nicotine, more nicotine tobacco than we are THC. There's all the action. Yeah, yeah. It's just What's astonishing too is when they bring up how failed the drug war on these other substances has been <laughs> while simultaneously initiating a new drug war elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know what? Yeah. That one didn't work out so well. Let's try it on this. You know, it's just. Let's do it this way. This has got to work. They see the trend going down from the 1964 report and they can't resist keeping that going. Like it, sure. it just. Of course it'll work. And it, it just, yeah, I don't have the words to explain. Like there's, there's a huge miss. There's this idea, this idea. Well, that was one of the things in the, um, in that for the gateway thing where he said that they have this, the, the trend line that they're going to would go to zero, which is just completely unreasonable. We know yeah. that it's not going to happen when they think that they're going to, again, how does banning something that, yeah, that whole, like I said, the cognitive dissonance is of, mm -hmm. 
we have to we have to stop banning stuff. Bans don't work. You know, the drug war has failed. We have to quit doing that. Um, ban flavors, ban things. <laughs> like, yeah. How do you, you know, people from the from the same that whole mindset, and it it's crazy. And I just don't know what they think that people are going to do. And they, I think a big problem is is they don't see any benefit. It's, the tobacco controllers have done such a good job of saying the only reason people smoke is because they're addicted to nicotine, and they don't mm -hmm. give any benefit you know they, they don't acknowledge that there's that like i'm receiving any benefit from it but i see that i do get a benefit from it so but but they won't look at the fact that i'm i don't have to take any kind of antidepressant not that that's a bad thing but i know but those have their own side effects too my mom suffered from them you know so right. they don't they don't see any benefit so they think that the only reason we continue to use nicotine is just because it's addictive that's it. That's the only reason. And so that's why they can't see. And that's why you see them saying things like, we need to save a whole new generation. You know, there's a whole new generation who's going to be addicted to nicotine. It's mm -hmm. like, and, you know, there's generations, but you're fine with them drinking coffee every day. I get a headache if I don't get my coffee. That's a withdrawal symptom. Hello. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. But, oh, my God. It's already 10 to, so we have to. I was saying, hey, yeah, we can't go down the, the rabbit hole of, of drugs on here because we'll be another three hours. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, off. Promise to come back. Well, we should have another time. Oh, I love that. Kind of go on to we'll that. We'll do an episode. It's just called Casa Does Drugs, and we'll have Andy on. <laughs> That's and, uh, good. <laughs> But yeah, thank you, Annie, for taking the time today to, to talk to us about this. I hope that this kind of maybe clarified or answered some questions from people may, might, might have cause, correlate some answers for folks out there um, in the differences and what to look out for when we're looking at different studies and, and what conclusions to jump to and what not to jump to. Um, so definitely thank you very much, Annie, for joining us today. Sure. Uh, definitely stick around, though, uh, post broadcast so we can get all of the recordings and things i forgot to mention that before the show um oh, definitely stick around for just a few more time. minutes um, okay Kristen, do you have any or annie really do you have any wrap-up thoughts for everybody out there after all of this just thank you all i'd love to be more involved um i think there needs to be more of this engagement with researchers not all these barriers um you all are the point that we're getting funded and doing our work so Thank you. Yeah. 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 Nothing about us without us. Yep. We'll scream it from the rooftops. Yeah. Nothing about us without us. Uh, Kristen, any thoughts before I go through our spiel? I don't think so. I, I, I talked a lot this episode, so <laughs> I'll shut up now. <laughs> All well, right. Annie, we're just going to put you back in the, uh, back in the staging area here and okay. wrap things up. See you in a bit. All right. Thank you, everybody who's tuning in. Thank you for everybody who's here right now. Thank you for all your great comments and questions. I'm sorry we didn't pull more of them up during the broadcast like we usually do. I think Kristen and I were both just so engaged in this conversation with Annie. Uh, but thank you all for being here, and thank you to everybody watching the replay right now. I did not forget about you this time. Uh, if you are currently not a member of CASA, you're breaking my heart right now. Head over to kasa.org. Sign up today. It's absolutely free. We promise We promise not to blow up your email, uh, but we will when we absolutely have to, so that way everybody can be involved. We have a lot of calls to action out, like we went over at the top of the hour. 
Um, so there's a lot going on. Uh, and really quick, just to recap that New York, Minnesota, Nebraska, Cleveland, Ohio, Maryland, Oregon, Connecticut, New Mexico, Hawaii, and heads up in Indiana and Illinois. All of those things are available on CASA's website uh, where all the calls to action are posted. You can just go over to the clicky map, click your state. If you live in a state, we've got it up on the clicky map. And oh, by the way, if you live in a state, we also and territory, we also have Facebook groups. Facebook pages that you can join uh, and be a part of, which is not only just awesome to be there, uh, but you also get to be a little bit more involved. Maybe there's something that comes up super locally that we haven't caught onto yet. Uh, it's a great way to give us a heads up so that way we can put that out um, and, and kind of spread the word in a bigger way there. So head over to Casa.org. You can also donate while you're there. We definitely love donations. Thank you. And, uh, if you are so inclined to pick up some sweet merch, you can do that as well. Danielle Jones has a bunch of fantastic designs up. You get to be a walking billboard for tobacco harm reduction. And I don't think there's many things that are better than that. I think that's it. Same time, same place, two weeks from now. I think so. We don't have a topic yet, but uh, we'll see. We might be I'm telling you, Kassad does drugs. That's our next show. We'll bring <laughs> Annie back. We're not actually going to do drugs. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. But we're definitely going to talk. About <laughs> no, that's not going to be the show. Well, we're gonna technically, figure it out, we do though. already. So you know, we're all. I mean, I could talk about drugs all day long. I know um, you. They're fascinating things. Fascinating things. Um, but Any I think that's going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing molecules. Amazing molecules. <laughs> Uh, and they're definitely not the boogeyman society and the media likes to make them out to be. So uh, well, more truth to power and all say, of that. I'm just going to say think, happy St. Patrick's Day to everybody. Yes. And yes. We won't see in, uh, and see if, for uh, two weeks. If you're somebody who's going to be going out to celebrate St. Patty's Day at the bars and pubs and whatnot, stay hydrated, be safe, you know, uh, drink responsibly, take care of yourselves and take care of those around you. That's going to do it for us. We're out of here. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Bye.